before we go forwards, backwards meaning uh, last week, we asked a question. We, the question that we asked is, when you think about Jesus, what picture comes into your mind? When you think about Jesus, what picture comes into your mind? And I'm not necessarily talking about maybe those of you that grew up in a home and you had a picture of Jesus somewhere in your uh, home. We had a picture of Jesus. I think he was, there was like a loaf of bread and a Bible or something. Maybe half of you have had that same picture. Um, what I'm talking about is what expectations does that Jesus have of you? What expectations do you have of him? What does he care about? What is he talking about? What is he doing? What comes to your mind when you think about Jesus? And we uh, hit on four or five different, what I would say are very skewed, unbiblical perspectives of who Jesus is. One of those was the Santa Claus Jesus, right? Santa Claus Jesus gives me what I want. So when I pray to him, most of my prayers are give me, give me, give me. And I feel close to him when he gives me things. Uh, another example, we, we talked about uh, Superman Jesus. Superman Jesus, his job is to save me, to rescue me when I call. When I need him, he comes. That's his job. And, and so I feel close to him when he's protected me from all difficulty. And my prayers, my, when I talk to him, it's mostly 911. God help. God fix this. God rescue me. Uh, what, what, what comes into your mind when you think about Jesus? What picture do you have in your mind? And, and so Matthew is really uh, painting this picture for us in the context of all these miracles, the power of Jesus, power over uh, sin, to, to forgive sin uh, on earth. And, and we're going to continue with that uh, because in today's text, in Matthew nine fourteen through 17, John's followers and the religious leaders come to Jesus, and their picture is really skewed. They don't get it. And because they don't get it, they have just latched on to the wrong things, and they have completely missed the main thing. And so the concern for us is if our picture of Jesus is not the biblical portrait, we will likely do the same thing that they did and cling to the wrong stuff and completely miss the main thing. So uh, let's look at the question that they asked Jesus, Matthew 9, verse 14, just one verse. Uh, Jesus uh, is with his followers. Uh, the followers of John the Baptist come to him. The religious leaders are with them. One of the few times we see them sort of on the same side, maybe. And, and here's, here's their question. Uh, Matthew 9, 14 says this. It says, then the disciples of John came to him saying, uh, why do we and the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast. We fast. We're doing what good people are supposed to do. Your disciples don't. What's their deal? They don't get it. And this is one of those occasions where there's more uh, than meets the eye uh, to the question. It's not just about fasting. It really is going to get at who are you and what are you doing. And we'll see that because Jesus' answer to them is so much more broad than just limited to uh, this idea of fasting. So uh, a little bit of information about fasting. Uh, fasting was prescribed in Jewish law around the Day uh, of Atonement. Uh, other than that, it was really up to them, so it wasn't prescribed as, a, as necessarily a regular thing. Uh, early rabbinic writing shows us that some groups, some religious groups, did a voluntary communal fast on Mondays uh, and Thursdays. And so uh, there's a fair amount of support that that's what's in mind here, that John's followers and the religious leaders are 
participating in this voluntary communal fast on Mondays and Thursdays. They're doing it, and they're looking at Jesus and his followers who aren't and saying, what gives? And so this is kind of something that happens often where uh, a group of people will take something that's good, fasting is good, uh, and then they'll add to it their own man-made expectations and then judge others who aren't fitting the mold that they've created. Their judgments are, are 10% scripture and 90% uh, man-made additions to it. And so this is actually something that is, is fairly common, I think, in our own lives. We'll take something that's a good thing, add some man-made expectations, and then look at other people who don't do what we think they should uh, in the same way that John's followers and the Pharisees are looking at Jesus' followers. Uh, for example, I grew up at a church that uh, had a Sunday morning service, uh, a Sunday night service, and a Wednesday night service. And, and some of you grew up in, in something like that and nothing uh, against that. All the services were useful. All the services were meaningful. Um, but, but sometimes we'll take scripture which says, don't forsake the gathering, don't forsake meeting together with the body, and then we'll throw in some man-made expectations. Well, the church is open four days a week, five days a week, six days a week. If you're a good Christian, you'll be there every time the doors are unlocked. If they're open, you'll be there. If the lights are on, you'll be there. And we would say, well, that must be the mark of maturity. We will take a good thing, add man-made expectations, and then judge others who don't. And this will happen just across the board. It'll happen with uh, our own perception of what mature people do, what they say, what kind of jobs they have, how much money they make, what they do with their money, um, how they worship, do they stand, do they sit, do they pray, do they memorize scripture? All of these things, will, we, we tend to add man-made expectations and then look down on those that don't fit the mold. Man-made expectations are exhausting. They're enslaving. They are ensnaring. They are suffocating, and they usually lead to us being impressed with ourselves, not impressed with what Jesus has done. They usually lead to us feeling a great sense of accomplishment rather than a heightened sense of what Jesus has accomplished for us. Uh, and so clearly we see that they are focused on fasting, fo- focus on man-made expectations, and they miss Jesus, the God-man, and Uh, implication then is they become critical of everyone around them. And and so there is a warning for us if you're someone that is perpetually seeing how others aren't measuring up. I would just caution you and and say, if that's your posture, it might be worth considering that maybe uh, you've drifted off course a bit. Uh, Jesus is going to respond to this question with three verses that in some ways seem completely unrelated, but they're three complementary ideas. But initially, he's going to address their question by focusing on two contrasting ideas, one celebrating, one mourning. And initially, it doesn't make a ton of sense, uh, but theologians um, have spent a considerable amount of time studying the the, the text and and the culture, and the consensus is, is that as Jesus criticizes them for mourning, He's referencing their posture in fasting, that they have a depressing, mournful posture in their fasting, mourning the spiritual darkness that is pervasive in their land. And and keep in mind, before Jesus came, you've got, at least from Scripture's standpoint, 400 years that feels like God is silent, he's not doing anything, he's not helping, our situation's getting worse, not better. 
they had expectations for what their life as a group of people, as a nation, would look like. And real life is not fitting in well with those expectations. There's a sense that their nation is shrouded in spiritual darkness. And Jesus comes at them for that mourning posture that they have. And so I wonder if maybe some of us today might feel like they did then, that that as a, as a people or as a group, we are shrouded in spiritual darkness. And, and maybe for you, it's, it's even more personal than just a large group of people or a, a nation or humanity as a whole. Maybe it's your own personal sense that you yourself are shrouded in the spiritual darkness or the spiritual darkness that you see in someone that you care about. We mourn that. We mourn when things go from bad to worse. We mourn when it looks like, seems like, God's not stepping in. God's not intervening. God's not helping. I, I mourn uh, in my extended family that, that some feel their worth is based on their success. Uh, I mourn the condition of a number of marriages in my extended family. We mourn these things when we see the pattern of sin and we see the pattern uh, of destruction and it doesn't look like God is doing anything uh, to fix it. We see that Jesus' followers stand out. Culture, their peers, the other religious leaders uh, feel shrouded in spiritual darkness. Jesus' followers, because of their proximity to him, see that he's overcoming evil, not being overcome by it. Jesus' followers stand out because they are not following the religious traditions of their culture. They're following Jesus. Jesus' followers stand out because they're not doing what their peers expect them to do. They're following Jesus. And so, so the first point related to Matthew nine fourteen is gospel living, kingdom living. Following Jesus w- will set you apart. It will make you stand out. I think about friends of ours who are headed to Papua New Guinea this year. Uh, and they're probably 26 and 27, 27 and 28, mid to late 30s, or to 20s, sorry. Uh, they've got one child who's probably 18 months. They've been married for three years. Uh, they are setting the mission of God in front of what culture sh- says newlyweds and young parents should do. They are setting the mission of God ahead of what their parents expect and want them to do. They're setting the mission of God ahead of the financial and career and professional aspirations that they have. And and so there is this thing where gospel living, kingdom living, following Jesus will at times even set you apart, will even cause you to stick out among God's people, uh, among Christians. So uh, let's continue in Matthew 9. I want us to see how Jesus responds to this question, uh, how he hears their question but knows their hearts, and so he addresses the much larger thing they're asking, who are you, what are you doing, Uh, and we're going to see that in, I think, a rather unusual way, Uh, Matthew 9, um, 15, 16, and 17. And Jesus said to them, can the wedding guests mourn as long as the bridegroom is with them? Question mark. Can they mourn as long as the bridegroom is with them. The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast, or then they will mourn. Um, Verse 16, 
No one puts a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old garment, for the patch tears away from the garment, and a worse tear is made. 17. Neither is new wine put into old wineskins. If it is, the skins burst, and the wine is spilled out, and the skins are destroyed. But new wine is put into fresh wineskins, so both are preserved. Do you think maybe John's followers are like, huh? Like, Jesus, three verses, three complementary ideas, but at face value, you read the first and you think, okay, maybe the second will make more sense. Nope. Maybe the third will make more sense. No, they don't, right? Uh, And so uh, from verse 15, Jesus uh, brings this picture, this illustration to them. And, And of course, in Scripture, regularly, Jesus is referred to as the groom who is prepared for his bride the church. And so Jesus uses this illustration to say when you're with the groom, when the wedding party is with the groom, when the attendants of the wedding are with the groom, when the celebration is happening, the feast is happening for day after day after day, they knew how to party. We're still learning. They actually knew how to do it. You would celebrate while they were there and then after the wedding party, after the bride and groom left, then it would, would end. Jesus is saying, you don't get it. I'm here. You should be celebrating. The fact that you're mourning reveals your spiritual blindness. Jesus is saying, if you knew who I was and what I was doing, you would not be mourning. Instead, you would be celebrating. Jesus says, I am here. I am the groom. We'll come back to this, but just at face value, um, church, we got a lot to celebrate. we got a lot to be grateful for. Alan shared uh, this morning really neat things happening in uh, young adults. Um, if you were to go back and look what's happening with children and kids, uh, you would see uh, tons of children and great things happening in the engagement with the kids and, and with parents. Great things happening here. Far, far bigger than that is the great thing that every believer gets to hold on to. The Spirit of God in us We have his presence in an even more meaningful way than what Jesus' followers did. And Jesus says, if you know who I am, if you get that, you will celebrate, not mourn. And and so I wonder, do we know that we have good things to celebrate in the Lord? Or are you known around the office as the Debbie Downer? I, I wonder if your spiritual glass is always half empty, if you've really drinking of the water of life that Jesus said he came to bring, that living water. We've got a lot to celebrate. Jesus says, now is the time to celebrate. I'm here. If you knew what I w- who I was and what I was doing, you would be celebrating, not mourning. Uh, verse 16. That's the patch. Jesus says, what happens when you have an old garment, it's got a hole in it, and you put a brand new, unshrunk, straight out of the package patch onto the old garment? If there's a strain in the garment by wear and tear, right? If you patch your eight-year-old boy's jeans with a patch and he goes running and he's wrestling and he's falling and there's a strain, the new patch won't tear. It's strong. It will just rip or detach or tear apart from the old garment and the patch that you, or the hole that you intended to patch will become much worse. Jesus says this homely piece of wisdom 
brings out the point that Jesus is not trying to just patch up Judaism. He's not just trying to patch up their system, their religious system of sacrifices and Old Testament law. He's not trying to just adjust it, amend it, patch it up, add to it with his teachings. Jesus is doing something new. Jesus is doing something next. He's saying, this is important. Pay attention. If you hold on to all of your Old Testament system, if you hold on to the Old Covenant and all of the rules and all of the sacrifices and then just try to add Jesus' teaching to that, the result will be that the tear in your spiritual life, the tear in that garment will be greater, the whole will be bigger than what it was initially. Verse 17, uh, wine. Some of you are like, well, it can't say wine in the Bible. It does. Um, uh, it even says ferment. So uh, that's happening. And so what they would do is, is put new wine in, in new wine skins. And I'm not a winemaker. I've never done that. So I, I'm not an expert here. Um, but Jesus is saying you would never put new wine that hasn't uh, fermented into an old wineskin. And so animal skins were used as wineskins. And after they were used, they would lose their elasticity. And so if you put new wine that still is doing all of this expanding and stuff into an old wineskin that had lost its elasticity, the wineskin would burst, the wineskin would be lost, and all of the wine would be lost. Both would be lost, Jesus says. Again, the image is clearer than the application. The idea is that Jesus' new work cannot be constrained or confined by the old covenant. In order for them to both be preserved, new forms uh, for worship, new forms for following will have to be adopted uh, to accommodate Jesus' new, Jesus' next teaching. And so he's really, Matthew's really, as he records this, again, he's painting a picture of immense relevance for Jesus' audience who's trying to figure out, is Jesus just a good teacher who's adding to what we know? Is Jesus trying to course correct our nation like so many of the prophets before who caused them to return to the law and return to offering sacrifices? And and Jesus says, pay attention. This is something new. Watch. Follow listen. And so we have this new, old, these words being used, uh, new covenant, old covenant, uh, new work, uh, old work. And and so we kind of have to pause a little bit to get a sense for what, what is all that new and old about? Because sometimes when we say old, as it relates to the old Testament or old, as it relates to the old covenant, uh, we think of old in our terms. Uh, we think of old like no longer useful, like an old 8-track. We think of old like something that has failed, like an old car. And, and that's, that's not the case uh, as Jesus talks about old and new here. So uh, let's go back to the beginning. Uh, Adam and Eve, this portrait of life in the kingdom of God. And what do we see in the garden? God's people living under God's rule in God's place, right? God's people, Adam and Eve, living under God's rule. He's with them in God's place, uh, the garden. And what happens, they got one rule to follow, one rule. How many times have you said this to your kids? You just have one thing to do, and you, your mind is blown that they can't do one 
thing. There was one toy in the living room. All you had to do was take away that one toy, put it in the brown basket. One thing. God gives them one thing to do. And they hate his word, and they listen to the serpent, and ignore him, and they eat of the fruit. And so the relationship is broken as his people, under his rule, in his place, and they have to leave the garden. But what, is, what does the Lord do? Hope is not lost. They've royally blown it, but hope is not lost, is it? No. What does the Lord do? He kicks them out, and he makes a covenant. One from the seed of Adam will crush the head of the serpent. Hope is not lost One day, says God, I will right the wrong that has been done here today. What you have broken, I will one day repair. Uh, Enter Noah, another covenant. Genesis 6, God comes to Noah and says, uh, sin is pervasive, sin is rotten, these people are rotten, this is broken. Sin must be dealt with. Sin is egregious before a holy God. It must be dealt with. Noah, I'm going to spare you and your family. Flood comes, judgment happens, Noah and his family come off the boat. God makes a covenant with them. Again, hope is not lost. God says, I will not again judge all of humanity in the way that I have. They will deserve it. They will deserve a judgment like this, but I will show mercy in the future. I will show mercy and will not judge the whole world, even though the whole world will be deserving of judgment. It's another covenant, another deal, another promise from God. Uh, Enter Abram, whose name would be changed to Abraham. God, again, continuing his covenantal work of restoring humanity, restoring his rule, restoring his people, undoing what they've broke. God says, Abraham, through you, all the nations of the world will be blessed. I'm going to make you a people, the people of Israel, and through you, all the nations of the world would be blessed. Again, hope is not lost. God promises to bring this about. He says, Abraham, you're not going to be able to do it. You're not going to be able to fulfill your end of the deal. I'm going to do this, says the Lord. And if you've studied Abraham's life at all, you know Abraham's life, uh, for the most part, was a series of failures and God rescuing him, right? It wasn't Abraham's ability to live up to the deal. God himself said he would do this work. Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Joseph, King Saul, King Solomon, King David, um, up and down, right? Uh, Two steps forward, Three steps back. Evil continued. You have the chronicles and the kings and the minor prophets and the major prophets. And and what themes emerge? Humanity cannot keep its end of the deal. No matter what God's arrangement with us is, the history of the Old Testament, the history of the people of Israel... Our history is a covenant-breaking history. No matter what deal is made, whether it's 613 laws uh, as part of the law or just one in the garden, we can't keep either. Can't keep either. We cannot keep our end of the deal. God's people are plagued by sin, separated from him by their sin. 
cast out of his land because of their sin. We see the Israelites all the time, up and down, right? They're in captivity, uh, then they're released. Uh, They wander away from the Lord. They ignore his voice again, so they go back to captivity. I mean, don't sometimes, when you read through the Old Testament, you wonder, how many times you got to be captured before you stop doing this? Like, how many times does this bad thing have to happen before you'll realize that God's path is a good path? What God has for you is good. Go that way. How many times in our own lives have we gone the same way repeatedly to our own detriment, to the detriment of those that we love and that we care for? Ephesians, I think it's Ephesians 2 or 3, um, 1 through 3, describes what we're like before Jesus. Uh, It doesn't describe, it's not a pretty picture. It doesn't paint a pretty picture. Uh, I have it written here somewhere in my notes, uh, but essentially Ephesians describes us as... um, People who are consumed are driven by our appetites. Uh, people who follow the way of culture. Uh, people who worship uh, the devil. People who are by nature, he's, Paul says, children of wrath. Not a, not a flattering portrait. Um, that's what Paul says. That's who we were, aside from, apart from, without Jesus. So we have this covenantal relationship over and over. God comes to his people uh, drawing them to himself, restoring his people. Uh, Themes emerge. God's people can never live up to their end of the bargain. And the second theme that emerges is sin must be dealt with permanently. Uh, Some of you are familiar with Hebrews 10. Hebrews 10, 4 says, For it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. In other words, it is impossible for the Old Testament system, for the sacrificial system, to take away sin once and for all. That second theme that emerges is sin must be dealt with permanently, not just temporarily, not just a temporary covering. Sin must be dealt with permanently. The whole of the Old Testament, up and down, such a rocky road, so much instability. So much pain. So like judgment is just always looming. Judgment is always around the corner. Enter Jesus. Uh, If you have your Bibles, turn back to Jeremiah 31. Sometimes we say new covenant. Sometimes we say new work. Uh, We talk about what Jesus did is, is bringing about the new covenant. And new sometimes implies that it was sort of an audible, like God got to the line of scrimmage in the football game. He looked around, realized that the defense was his own defense, and he calls an audible. So we just have to see that, that Jesus is, is not an audible. Written in Jeremiah, 600 years before the birth of Jesus, we see a description of what Jesus would do and the newness or the nextness of his work. Jeremiah 31, just a few verses, 31 through 34. Thirty-one says, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. Not like the covenant I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. My covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. There's that bride-bridegroom imagery again. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within their hearts, I will write it on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. Okay, we're, we're getting back to that uh, God's people under God's rule, in God's place. 
For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within their hearts. I will write it on their hearts. I will be their God. They shall be my people. And no longer shall they each teach one another, his neighbor and his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me from the least to the greatest, declares the Lord. And then here it is. For I will forgive their sins, and I will remember their sin no more. That sounds permanent, doesn't it? I will forgive their iniquity, and I will remember their sin no more more. Oh, that's, that's pretty permanent. He says he will write their, his law on our hearts. He will be our God. Using the words from Matthew 9, a uh, new wineskin, new wine, a uh, new patch. Um, We see the Old Testament, a pattern of covenant breaking. We see the New Testament, Jesus is the one who comes and he keeps the covenant that we could never keep. He does for us what we could never and have never and would never do for ourselves in coming and living a sinless life, offering it up on the cross to pay the penalty that we deserve. Uh, 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, God made him who had no sin, that's Jesus, to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Our sin in Jesus has been dealt with once and for all. Sin needed to be dealt with. It's always been needed to be dealt with. Jesus dealt with it once and for all. It's permanent We couldn't keep our end of the deal. Jesus keeps our end of the deal for us. Uh, Through the establishment of the new covenant, uh, God fulfills his promise to the patriarchs, uh, to Adam and Eve, that one from their line, from Adam's line, would crush the head of the serpent. Jesus is the one who crushes the head of the serpent. To Noah, I will never judge the world again in this way. Jesus is the one who assures that the world will never be judged again in that way. To Abram, I will bless all the nations of the world through you. Jesus is the one who comes and blesses all the nations of the world through him. Uh, To David, God had said, David, one from your line will sit on the throne forever. Jesus is described as the son of David who sits on the throne forever. All of these promises find their fulfillment in Jesus. What do we get out of the deal? Uh, Two things. Permanence in his presence. Um, the second point this morning from verses 15 through 17 is, is not just gospel lived, living sets you apart. Gospel living sets you free. What do we get out of this deal? Uh, the first is, is permanence, right? Uh, Jeremiah and, and Ezekiel 36 and 37, uh, the idea is that uh, he will forgive us our sins. He will remember them no more. We read elsewhere as far as the east is from the west. That idea uh, fits here, um, but Jesus has permanently paid the debt that our sin owes, and his righteousness has been permanently credited to our account. And see, that's freeing because many of us live life on a spiritual treadmill. Wake up, 
get on the treadmill, run as fast as we can, trying to do as many good things as we can, trying to go faster and faster, earning God's favor, doing more good things to be approved by him and others, and maybe even to ourselves, and we never get off. We wake up every day and get back on that spiritual treadmill. It's exhausting. When we understand that Jesus' perfect righteousness has been credited to our spiritual bank account, where it never depreciates, never goes down, never is robbed, never is stolen, we understand that our posture, our position, our standing before God is permanent. It will never change. It's not contingent upon future perfect behavior. It's contingent upon what Jesus already did. And Jesus said that it is finished. We get permanence. We get to get off the treadmill of trying to prove ourselves worthy or earn favor. And we enter his rest forever. That permanence is significant because we're reminded every day that that permanence is limited here on earth, isn't it? We're reminded every day that there's great brokenness in our midst. We're reminded every day that there are great fractures in our relationships. We are reminded every day that sin still has weight in our lives. And so as we struggle with those things, as we uh, bump up against them and we get discouraged, uh, we can always come back to the permanence of our position in Christ, no matter what is happening around us. That's what it means when we say we don't want to miss the main thing, right? John's followers, the Pharisees, missed the main thing and focused on what they could do to earn favor, focused on what they could do to um, prove worthy. They missed the main thing. The second thing is, is we get his presence Um, Ezekiel 36 and 37 are great verses. And by the way, if you're interested in New Covenant, Old Covenant stuff, uh, read Jeremiah 31, read Ezekiel 36, Ezekiel 37, um, read the whole book of Romans, um, all all sorts of of great things. But Ezekiel says this, uh, referencing this New Covenant, as we think about his presence. Ezekiel writes, I will give you a new heart. I will put a new spirit within you. I will remove the heart of stone from your body and will give you a heart of flesh. Not a hard heart, a soft heart. I will put my spirit within you and I will take the initiative and you will obey. As part of the new covenant, we get his spirit, we get his presence, and that's permanent. So we're never alone, right? Some of you live alone. No one else lives in your house. You feel alone in a thousand ways. We're never alone. Some of you feel like it's you versus the world, or it's you versus an employee, or you versus a boss, or you versus a neighbor, or you versus a family member. You feel outmatched, outgunned. You're the perpetual underdog. We have the spirit. We are never the underdog. We are never outmatched. We are never outgunned. We're never alone. It's never up to us to navigate uh, our circumstances. We have his spirit. His spirit holds us fast to his purposes and to our relationship with him. Uh, David in in Psalms uh, talks about, Lord, don't take your spirit from me. We read elsewhere in the Old Testament where the spirit of God departed from his people. That will never happen to new covenant believers. That will never happen to those of us who by faith receive forgiveness from Jesus and follow him. That will never happen. 
We will always have his spirit. So you don't have to wake up thinking, man, I had a rough day yesterday. I hope God doesn't <sighs> abandon ship, file chapter 11 bankruptcy on me. I hope he doesn't snooze on me for the next three or four days. We have his spirit permanently. Revelation 21 is, is a great spot for us to end. What is the outcome of all of these covenants? God's work restoring his rule, restoring his people. Revelation 21 records what John saw. Listen to this. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain any more for the former things have passed away and he who was seated on the throne said behold i am making all things new write this down for these words are trustworthy and true and he said to me it is done i am the alpha and the omega the beginning and the end does that kind of sound like genesis does it kind of sound like the garden god's people under god's rule in God's place, that's how we started. And God is actively working in history to restore humanity to himself, to restore his rule, to restore us to what he created us for. Some of you today might uh, relate to the religious leaders and to John's followers. They were far from Jesus. Because of their proximity to Jesus, their perception was that evil was overcoming and they didn't see that Jesus was overcoming evil and so they missed the main thing. If you're here and you're missing the main thing, Romans 10 says, if we confess with our mouth and believe in our heart that God raised him from the dead, we will be saved. If you confess with your mouth, if you repent and follow by faith. What is faith? Uh, believing and obeying. Head and heart. Right? Believing and obeying. Head and heart. Following Jesus. You will be saved. If you're here today and uh, you're there. You get it. Um, I would say don't let what you see happening around you cause you to despair or doubt that Revelation 21 is what is next for us. Doesn't matter who is in charge. Doesn't matter what country is ruling at the moment. Doesn't matter what persecution exists or doesn't exist for God's people. Revelation 21 is what is next for us. Praise the Lord. Romans 10.13 says, Everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. If you're here today and you need to call upon the name of the Lord and be saved, if your life resembles that hamster wheel, that eternal treadmill, 
You don't have to leave the same way that you came in. Paul says, all who call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. Would you call upon the name of the Lord this morning and be saved? Let's pray. Lord, fill us with a great sense of wonder uh, of your global, eternal plan to undo what we did wrong in the garden. And that at each point when Israel failed, at each point when we have failed repeatedly, you said, hope is not lost. I will one day right this wrong. Lord, thank you that your posture towards us is not hope is lost, but rather you will right what is wrong. We can't do our part and keep any end of the bargain, Lord, but we can respond to your word by faith and follow. We can respond to your word by faith and trust. Lord, give us faith to trust, faith to follow. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.